Uh, we do want to resume our study here of, of the letter of Paul to Titus. Uh, so if you'd open your Bibles to Titus chapter 3, we are going to finish a very, very significant uh, section here. We have a little bit left after this Sunday, uh, but we're going to finish a very important section beginning in, in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, and running all the way to chapter 8. We've been in this text already for several Sundays because it is so densely packed with with rich theology. And as uh, I've entitled this series, How Then Shall We Live?, even though there is, as we will see, such great theology about, uh, about salvation, Paul gives this teaching in response to his, his instruction to these new Cretan believers as to how they are to live their lives in a, in a very corrupt, dark society. And we've seen so far as we've gone through this section, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1, that Paul outlines for them the Christian's high calling in verses 1 and 2. He says this, Remind them then, he's speaking to Titus, who is his delegate there, remind them, the Cretan believers, scattered in little communities across that island, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. That was the high calling that they had, having been drawn out by God from that wicked society known as evil beasts, lazy gluttons, always liars. They had been saved, and instead of looking then with condescension and disdain on their countrymen, the Apostle Paul says to Titus, be sure to instruct them in this high calling. And then he moves on to provide motivation for this instruction. In verse 3, he then gives a reminder of the Christian's humbling past. He says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. As Paul establishes the justification for these instructions, he first turns to remind them that they themselves were once evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and always liars. They were of the same ilk. In fact, what is astonishing here is that Paul doesn't say, for you also once were, but he, as this man who is raised in this strict Jewish upbringing, he includes himself in this as he gives this list of, of characteristics of human depravity. For we also once were. And then he moves to the next section, a long sentence, which extends from the beginning of verse 4 all the way to the end of verse 7, where Paul explains what has happened to these Cretans to move them from that status, that state of depravity, into their current state. This is a long sentence. It is perhaps Paul's most condensed sentence in soteriological terms as he covers so much ground in these four verses. Here Paul reminds them of their testimony. He says this, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. As you look at this text, there, there's incredible, an incredible amount of vocabulary here that, that contains really profound themes. And as we will see at the end of our study when we get into verse 8, this is a sentence that all of us as believers who are like those Cretans who are saved, all of us as believers must understand this sentence very well. Look at verse 8, for example, just at the beginning. We'll get there near the end of our study, but Paul says this is a trustworthy statement. Paul intended this sentence, with all its rich vocabulary, pointing to very profound themes, to be paradigmatic for us. It is to be the standard for how we view our lives as Christians, and so it behooves us to spend a lot of time in this text, and we have uh, already, but we will spend one more Sunday on this, because Paul wanted these words to stick. This is a trustworthy statement. And in this statement, there is one main clause, one main clause, and everything else in this statement serves to explain and to expound this main idea. It is this. It's found in our Bibles in the beginning of verse 5. He saved us, but actually when you look at the original Greek, as I mentioned last time, it is actually found right in the middle of all of this. So you have a lot of sentence before this key main clause, and and a lot of sentence after. He positions it right in the middle. It's like this diamond that is set in, in the center of all these other jewels, and this diamond is this, God saved us. He saved us. This is the simple, most most profound words that we can say in terms of our testimonies. If you're looking for the, the, the shortest sentence to describe what has happened to you, it's these three words, he saved me. You can't get any shorter than that. You have to refer to God. You have to refer to what he's done, and you have to refer to you personally for this to be the appropriation of the gospel promise. He saved me. That's the Christian's glorious testimony. But what Paul does here is that he fills that main idea with all kinds of other descriptors which we must study. And and as he does, what is also important to note here is that it is fully Trinitarian. He begins by talking about God the Father, and and he obviously is the, the, the subject here, the reference to he saved us. It's God our Savior. And then he goes on to mention the Holy Spirit who is poured out as this great seal of our salvation, and that this all happens through the mediation, the instrumentality of Jesus Christ, our Savior. What a wonderful emphasis that Paul makes here. We're going to finish the last part of that sentence this morning, and then we'll get, of course, as we close to verse 8, the concluding sentence of this paragraph. And here Paul brings it back to what his thought was as he started Uh, When he started, he commanded them to live a certain way, and now he comes back to that in verse 8 and gives them uh, this missionary directive. 
he, he's speaking here and commanding certain behavior of them for a purpose, and it's found in verse 8 where he writes, this is a trustworthy statement, referring to the sentence of verses 4 to 7, and then he says this, and concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, Titus, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. And as we close this morning, we're going to see that that goodness and profitability for men is not just in some kind of ethical, social dimension. Paul is coming back to this key idea of of salvation and that living a certain way is going to make a difference in God's plan for redemption. So let's look again now at this sentence that's, that begins in verse 4 to 7, and, and remember what we have seen already. We, we've noticed, first of all, this historical context. Paul has to establish salvation in a historical one-time event. Salvation is not tied to some kind of event that God just does differently for every individual. He just does something to save you, and that can vary. No, it's all centered in one historical event. Those whom God saves, those are, those, that salvation is connected to a, a once-for-all historical event, and that comes here in, in verse 4. When the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, and we looked uh, two Sundays ago at this text and saw that this is Paul's language for referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He points to the incarnation of the Son, the appearance. That word appearance, uh, it, it has this kind of uh, soteriological, this salvific goal. It's an epiphany, an appearance, the appearance of the Son. And rather than just saying, uh, when Jesus Christ appeared, he points instead to the qualities that Jesus represents in terms of revealing God to us, and that those qualities are the kindness of God and his love for mankind. Paul essentially says you can find other titles for the person of Jesus. Call him the kindness of God. Call him God's love for mankind. That's who he is. Paul centers this salvific activity in this historical context. And it reminds us that even as we look at our salvation... If our salvation isn't directly connected to this historical event, it is no salvation. It must be connected. We must understand that the reason we have a standing before God of peace is all related to the person of Jesus Christ and his incarnation and what he accomplished through it. We also saw in, in verse 5, we saw the supernatural basis of this salvation. He saved us, and Paul describes this basis in terms of a denial and an affirmation. Notice the beginning of verse 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. There is an, a denial and an affirmation. First of all, Paul is very clear to say, look, as, as you think of the basis for your salvation, understand it has nothing to do with your works. In fact, to emphasize that, he says it's not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. He is referring specifically to efforts made in religion 
to try to atone for one's sin, to try to make the payment and make oneself acceptable to God. Paul completely and categorically denies that as the basis for salvation. You cannot be saved if you think you contribute to it. That something you do, something that you accomplish contributes to the foundation or the basis of that salvation. Paul denies that categorically and instead gives us this affirmation. God saves us exclusively on the basis of his own compassion. But according to his mercy, Paul says, not on our character, not on our accomplishments and achievements, but solely and exclusively the basis of our salvation is the character of of God, his mercy, his compassion. And now we pick up where we left off last time and continue on beginning in the middle of verse 5, and we're going to cover some new territory now. Paul continues after he emphasizes the supernatural basis of salvation, the supernatural basis of our Christian testimony, he now explains the transformative means, the transformative means. In other words, we're not just saved as and in to continue in evil beasts, lazy gluttons, and liars. Transformation happens. That's that's what happens when God saves us. There is a transformation, and Paul explains this transformation in the, at the end of verse 5 and into verse 6. Notice what he says. He says it this way. He says, by, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing or renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is in response to the question about how. So when you think of your own testimony, you know, sometimes we can think of it purely in these, these, these human and, and these, these physical or material kinds of terms. Paul is challenging us to understand that if we are saved, there is something that is very different, very supernatural that has happened to us. And he uses two key terms here that are essentially synonymous. There's a little bit of a difference, but we're going to generally treat them as synonymous. There are two terms that express or explain, that describe inner transformation. He says, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal or renewing by the Holy Spirit. In theological terms, those those two terms are, are very synonymous, very closely related. And so Paul is now describing for us the, the means by which we are transformed. Let's look at each of these. First of all, he says that every Christian who has experienced the salvation of God has been transformed by the means of washing of regeneration. Washing of regeneration. Well, first of all, the, the term for washing, in a very literal, literal sense, had the idea of bathing, cleaning, in, in that physical sense. But in, in these kinds of contexts, this term had to do with spiritual cleansing, a non-physical, non-literal, but figurative kind of, of cleansing, that at the moment of salvation, there was a washing that took place. And that washing is described as being by or of regeneration. 
And that term regeneration is the term that is connected to our concept of being born again. It refers to being brought into life. It's it's a term that's actually only found two times in the New Testament. Here, to refer to the individual, back in Matthew 19, it's used to refer in verse 28 to the regeneration of the nation of Israel, that in the future there's coming a time when the whole nation of Israel is going to be regenerated. It's essentially going to be born again on a national scale, referring to what God's plan is for the people of Israel. But here the term is used to refer to individuals. And this concept of regeneration is is certainly, even though it's only mentioned explicitly twice, it's mentioned by other synonyms in the Scriptures. If you go to the Old Testament, for example, the, the synonym for this would be the circumcision of the heart. It's the circumcision of the heart, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Or in Ezekiel, it's the giving of a new heart or the giving of a heart of flesh. In John chapter 3, it's being born again or being born from above, being born of water and the Spirit. 1 Peter 1, verse 3, we've been born again. 1 John, 1, uh, uh, 1 John 2, 29, we've been born of God. Ephesians 2, verse 5, we have been made alive. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, we've been made a new creation. There's, there, there's a new life that is there. This is what has happened. This is the means that is accomplished when God saves us. He does not leave us in that old state simply to continue as we always were, enslaved to the lusts and its passions, continuing to be hateful, full of malice, and hating others. No, he transforms us fundamentally on the inside. John Murray describes this kind of regeneration in these terms. He, he, call, he, he, he writes this, he says, regeneration is, quote, a change which is radical and all-pervasive, a change which cannot be explained in terms of any combination, permutation, or accumulation of human resources, a change which is nothing less than a new creation by him who calls the things that be not as though they were, who spoke and it was done, who commanded and it stood fast. This, in a word, is regeneration. And this concept of regeneration fits very well with what Paul has already stated in the first half of verse 5 when he says that, he, that, that God has saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done, we can't do these deeds that would enliven us. The, the, you, you understand the concept that the dead man can't make himself alive. It's, it's not in his power. He lacks any and all resources necessary to resuscitate himself. He's dead. And yet it is God, when he saves us, he makes us alive through this spiritual washing. He washes the deadness away. He washes the stone heart away. That's what he does when we're saved. Now, some of us look back on our conversion, and and for some, there is that moment where it's it's night and day difference, and it happens within a few moments. All of a sudden, 
You went from hating God and loving sin to loving God and hating sin. How did that happen? And you know that there was just something supernatural, and you can point to that. Other, others, especially those who may have grown up in Christian homes, it's, it's this long process, and you wonder, well, where, did this even happen in my life? Sometimes it seems like the process takes days or maybe even months. And while we don't necessarily know all those, those details, because this is not something that is physical in nature, it's, it's spiritual, if you are in Christ, if you've been saved, this has happened to you. At a moment in time, when that salvation was gifted to you, he washed you. He washed the stone heart away. He continues and he uses this other analogy here. He says, and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Here's the second means, although, as I said, this is essentially synonymous with the first. The idea of renewing, it means to cause something new to come into being from that which is old. To renew. Something is old, but it is made brand new. And it's done... Here, Paul states explicitly, by the agency of the Holy Spirit. And this certainly fits in with what we know, for example, from other texts of Scripture, that that this is one of those acts of God where the agency of the Holy Spirit is particularly emphasized. He is the one who imparts true life, who makes us new. This shouldn't be understood, this renewing, as as some kind of process. Now, indeed, this term, renewal, is used elsewhere to refer to a process. If you would look at uh, at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, it talks about the process of sanctification, that that, uh, we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And in that text, this word certainly is used to refer to a process. But in the text here, Paul is not emphasizing a a lifelong process, that we are saved by this lifelong process. Instead, we are to understand this renewing, just like the washing, as a completed act. He saved us, not he is saving us. It's very clear that Paul has a definitive, completed act in view. He saved us. How? By the renewing of the Holy Spirit, or by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, that act of making us who are old in the old Adam, old in our sin, old in our hearts, he made us new. Spurgeon has a good way of explaining this. In one of his sermons, he explains this renewal by the Holy Spirit with these words. He writes, quote, He lieth dead in sin. Speaking of man, the Spirit must quicken him. He is bound hand and foot, fettered by transgression. The Spirit must cut his bonds, and then he will leap to liberty. God must come and dash the iron bars out of their sockets, and then he can escape afterwards. But unless the first thing be done for him, he, that is the sinner, must perish as surely under the gospel as he would have done under the law. 
In other words, what Spurgeon is saying here, that even in the preaching of the gospel, when, when the sinner hears the gospel, that is not enough. What must happen is this act of renewal that is done by the Spirit as the Spirit enlivens and makes new, gives a heart to believe and to embrace that gospel. But if that Spirit is not operating in the life of the sinner, the mere hearing of the gospel will not save. This emphasizes that this salvation has done all of God. And we see this even going back to the Old Testament. In fact, the language is reminiscent of a key text in Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 26, where you have the prophecy of the, the new covenant. And as I mentioned before from Matthew 19, verse 28, there is coming a time that the whole nation is going to be renewed, given a heart of flesh, and the whole nation of Israel will, will be regenerated. And this text speaks specifically and directly to that new covenant. But what we see is that Paul takes this language and he applies it to believers and says on an individual basis, you Gentiles there in Crete are able already, before the Jewish nation gets to experience these blessings, you already are partakers, are recipients of these blessings. Notice what we read in Ezekiel 36. The Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. There's the washing of regeneration, the idea of the water spiritually understood. But it's important because in that day, they, they, they understood very well the physical washing and what water would do, and it's taken in a figurative sense to explain this profound truth. But there's more. Moreover, the Lord says, I will give you a new heart. Notice the emphasis on newness, renewal. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is a prophecy of the new covenant that is issued to Israel and God's covenants and his promises are irrevocable. This is one day going to happen to the nation. The New Testament testifies that to that Jesus himself does as well. But Paul takes that language and says to the Gentiles, listen, in the church age, you already are able individually to partake and participate in these blessings that have been achieved through Christ's death and resurrection. And he continues, Paul does, and Verse 6, now after mentioning the Holy Spirit to explain what the Holy Spirit does in that moment of salvation, Paul can't resist but describe the, the ministry of the, the Spirit and the Spirit's role in greater detail. Notice verse 6, Paul then describes the Spirit in this way. He says, whom he, that is the Father, God our Savior, poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The idea of pouring out here, again, has the idea of liquid, of water. It was used to describe pouring liquid that is to the point of inundation. That's the idea there. And Paul chooses that verb to say that in the moment of salvation, if you have been truly saved, 
You may not feel this way, but this is what has happened to you spiritually. God has poured His Spirit upon you, not just so that you have barely enough, but He has done so lavishly. Paul says richly. The idea is is that the Spirit has been given to you even more than what you need. He has not been miserly in how He has given you this seal, this strength for living this new transformed life. And it is given through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And here again, we see that the title Savior, as it as it was previously applied in verse 4 to God the Father, now the title Savior is applied to Jesus Christ, to the Son, to show that in this work of salvation, there is complete unity and harmony among the persons of the Godhead. It is not that one does some of the work and the others watch and observe, or not part of it, but all the Godhead is involved in this work of salvation. And in verse 7, Paul describes for us the ultimate purpose for this salvation. Notice verse 7. He gives us the final insight into this act of God's saving us. He says, So that, being justified by His grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is why God saved us, ultimately. And you might be thinking, well, as long as I have my sins forgiven, that's great, but that's only a little bit of the purpose for which God has saved you. The the so that here, as it comes at the end of this sentence, emphasizes the purpose of God's saving activity. This is what your salvation is drawing or driving toward. It is driving toward an end goal. He says, so that being justified. He he mentions that great doctrine of justification almost in passing. He hasn't mentioned it so far, but he's got to fit it in with all this rich theological vocabulary. And he mentions it as something that that has been done already. It's not something that is in process. It is something that has been done. You have been justified. What does that mean? Well, the act of justification means to acquit someone of sin and to declare that person righteous. Justification is not merely forgiveness. It is not merely the the removal of guilt. It's not merely the pronunciation of innocence. Justification is so much more. Justification is the pronunciation of righteousness. That what has happened in the act of salvation is that in that moment that God saves you and the Spirit gives you this newness of life, that in that same moment, He says to you, the sinner who has been saved from all of that sin mentioned in verse 3, He declares you righteous. Not just innocent, but righteous. Righteous in His sight. Declared righteous so that As you stand now in the present experience of this salvation, you already are positionally righteous. You have received that status. 
that will not change. He has made this declaration not on, your, on the basis of your works. Remember what he has said previously. This is all done on your behalf according to the accomplishments of God alone. Notice what he says, justified by his grace. Not our works, but God's unobligated favor. Grace speaks to that which is never merited. If it was merited, it would be a wage. But because it is not merited in any shape, way, or form, not one iota of this is merited. It is called grace. And that grace is God's unobligated favor. He is not obligated to give it to you. In His perfect righteousness, what He gives to you in justification is not something that that He must, as if His arm is behind His back being twisted, or that there's something in you that is compelling Him to justify you. Nothing. It is made solely completely on the basis of his favor, of his character. And now get this, here's where he now gets to this purpose, so that we would be made heirs. Now this is what is so amazing here, because he saves us not only to give us forgiveness of all that filth, he saves us not only to give us momentary or present peace, with God, but he saves us in order to give us something even greater than we know right now. Think of the concept of the heir. If you are an heir to an estate, it means you have not yet received the benefits. It means that you have been formally declared a recipient of all the possessions of that, heir, that, that estate, but you still have yet to collect it. And Paul uses that same concept here to describe what salvation is for us. We have been made heirs. We have been declared righteous. We have had our sins forgiven. But this is just the foretaste of what is yet to come. The best part of salvation, Paul is saying here, is still in the future. And what we experience now and all the manifold blessings of being saved is just a foretaste of what he describes as this hope of eternal life. And let me just say this with respect to eternal life. We kind of use that, that, that term, eternal life, because it's so much a part of our language already when we, we talk about the gospel or John 3.16, uh, we just use eternal life. But let me say this, as we study this text, as you dig down into it, and as you, you read of, of the, the New Testament writers and how they're describing eternal life, we, we, we don't hardly know anything about this life. It is so profound, it is so blessed, that our life now simply doesn't compare. It is something so much greater than we can even now in our current state conceive. And what we, 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 we experience now in the blessings of this life, and there are many blessings in the Christian life. All of us who are in Christ can testify to them. We could all get up here and go for hours just talking about the blessings one after another that we experience now in in this walk of salvation, in this receipt of God's forgiveness and justification, but it is just a little foretaste of what is to come. With that, Paul then draws this section to a conclusion with Another practical 
application here of these rich, profound truths. But he begins in verse 8 with this special statement. After he's talked about the high calling in verses 1 and 2, after he's talked about the humbling past in verse 3, the glorious testimony in verses 4 to 7, now he speaks of the Christian's missionary directive in verse 8, and he begins with this phrase, this is a trustworthy statement. What does this point to? It's not to what is going to follow. Instead, when he refers to this, he's referring to the theology that he has just given us in that sentence, beginning in verse 4 and and ending in verse 7. This, verses 4 to 7, is a trustworthy statement. This sentence, verses 4 to 7, is to serve as the paradigm, Titus, Cretans, commissioned. It is to serve as the paradigm for understanding what happened to us in salvation. This is very important because we're often asked to explain our salvation, share how you were converted. And understandably, that that question is answered in various ways, and we tend to emphasize all the personal elements. Grew up in a Christian home and, you know, heard John MacArthur driving tractor and all those kinds of things, and we emphasize all those personal aspects, and all of that's good because God does save us as individuals, as persons. But so often our testimonies really just reflect our own experiences rather than the transcendent truths. And what Paul is giving us here, and we must catch this in verses 4 to 7, he's giving us the paradigm. Because what has happened to us Because we are so far just heirs, we we don't understand it all, and especially the spiritual elements are still beyond us. But he's saying, saying, here, let me pull back the veil so that you can see what happened to you really. And this is what it is. So that from now on, when you think of your salvation, yes, talk about all those unique personal individual aspects of how the gospel came to you and the impact it had, but don't forget these truths. So in response to the question, explain your salvation, all of us should always be ready to flip open Titus chapter 3 and beginning in verse 4 and say, let me tell you, here it is. When the kindness of God, my Savior, and his love for me appeared, he saved me, not on the basis of, of the deeds which I have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon me richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, I would be made an heir according to the hope of eternal life. Believer, that's your testimony. And you might look at yours right now in the the practicality of it and say it's not very... It's not very dramatic. That's okay. In terms of the human aspect of it, it is very dramatic in terms of what happened to you in reality. And so go back to these verses. In fact, let me just give you this this counsel as you think of sharing your testimony or speaking the gospel to others, and then they ask you, how how does that happen in your life? Here's a a four-part testimony checklist that comes from these verses. And you can use it this way in saying, here's the story of my salvation. Number one, 
point to its historical context. Show how it is rooted. Take the listener to the historic work of Jesus Christ. It all began one day, 2,000 years ago, on a hill far away. And there was an old rugged cross. That's where it has to start. If it doesn't, it's not a testimony. It has to go back to that historical event of Jesus Christ. And then secondly, then you point to the supernatural basis that, that you explain, okay, these are the, 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 the way in which I was saved was this way, not on, on the basis of my personal merit, not at all according to the works I've done in righteousness. That doesn't save me. Instead, it's done only on the basis of God's mercy, His character, not mine. And then you point to its transformative means. And this salvation isn't just some, some little incidental thing. It, it, it brought about transformation inside of me. It gave me new life. It made this decisive break with the heart of stone and the sinful flesh. It brought about newness. And then you bring it to this ultimate purpose and that this salvation qualifies me more than, for more than just the forgiveness of sins. What God has done for me has made me an heir. He's pronounced me righteous and said, heaven is yours. And not just heaven as in you're going to spend the rest of eternity on a cloud playing a harp, but all the riches of God, his spiritual riches now have been promised to me, and I'm an heir. It has been declared, and I will receive it one day. That is my testimony. Paul then, as I said, moves from there, and we'll end quickly with this. He ends with this missionary directive, he continues, and, and he says, he says, and concerning these things, all that he has written here in this section, I want you to speak confidently, Titus, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. So Paul says, you know what? It's not just that we just think about these things mentally and just leave it there. That we get together and we just talk about all this rich theology. We should. But there's another step that comes from all of this. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. Paul says, Titus, speak confidently. He gives Titus his apostolic authority and says, pass on these rich theological truths, everything from verses 1 to 7, but especially from verses 3 to 7, speak these things for the purpose that believers, those who have come to believe in God, will be careful. The idea is intentional, giving sustained thought to investing energy into, will be careful to do what? To engage in, to occupy themselves with good deeds. It's to head in this direction. It's not just to remain the, 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 the focus of our best mental energies. It is to result in a kind of lifestyle that when we truly understand that from which we've been saved, 
and how we've been saved and for what we've been saved, it doesn't just remain theoretical. It has a direct impact in our conduct. And he calls this this conduct, he says, these things, these good deeds are good and profitable for men. And, And this is where Paul wraps it all up and he closes this section of instruction with an evangelistic push. He's not just aiming here for some kind of ethical benefit for your neighbors or your coworkers or your family members that, you know what, they'll, they'll enjoy life better. Paul is in no way content that sinners remain in their sin but just have a better life at it. When he refers to that which is good and profitable, we read it in light of verses 3 to 7, that we were once foolish ourselves, and the gospel came to us and impacted us. And this is what Paul is wanting the Cretans now to to live so that their lives would be the conduits, the channels for the salvation of others. Having been saved from that unbelief, the Cretan believers now have the opportunity to live it out and to do what we read of in, in Matthew 5, verse 16, Jesus' own words, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. It's not to say that Paul is somehow minimizing the preaching of the gospel, but we can go in the opposite direction and say that all that's necessary is to preach the gospel and it doesn't matter how we live before the watching world, Paul does not embrace that approach either. He says there is a missionary purpose to your good deeds, and that is that others who are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons would come to know the richness of God as you have. So as we close, some final implications here. Number one, do you see yourself in Titus 3, verses 3 to 7? Beginning with total depravity in verse 3, and then, of course, the work of salvation in verses 4 to 7. Take this text home, and I ask you to do this while this is still fresh. Read through it, and notice all the the plural first-person pronouns, we, our. I want you to read through it and say, can I put my personal pronoun in there, I, my, me. Has God saved you? Do you see yourself in there? Can you claim these as that which has happened in your life? Secondly, do you now give intentional thought to your display of good works, not merely to live in in a way as to avoid chaos or problems from neighbors and 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 co-workers and family members, but do you give intentional thought that you once were like them? God has saved you, and now you have the opportunity to be instrumental in the salvation of others. And then thirdly, is it your desire that your life will be that instrument used for the salvation of others? Not only are you intentional with your good works, how you're going to live them, but your heart's desire is that they who are like you once were, would come to know these truths as well. Let's pray for that. Father, we come back to the central sentence in this whole section. 
that you saved us. We confess that we only know the surface of the great depth of the meaning behind those words. And we pray that these words of your scripture would be pressed down deep within us. And as we live our lives, every one of these key terms, these phrases would become more and more understandable to us. We thank you that you are the God who saves. We thank you that this is all contingent upon your character and not upon our achievements. For none of us would then be saved. With this reality in mind, may you make us a a, a missionary people very firmly grasping this missionary directive that flows out of this wonderful testimony of what you have done in our lives. Use us to the salvation of others. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.